0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to be here with everyone. So uh, as a lot of you know, and we know this both from our study of the Buddhist teachings, but especially we know this just from our study of our own heart, our own experience, that there are these whirlpools of our mind, these vortexes of drama, of greed, hatred and delusion, of being pushed around by our likes and our dislikes or pushed around by the eight worldly winds, some of you know that, teaching the experience of gain, the experience of loss, the experience of pain, and the experience of pleasure, the experience of praise, the experience of blame, fame, and disrepute. So we know this activity of being pushed around, of being spun around. It's really our ordinary experience. and. One of the tragedies is it becomes so commonplace that it doesn't stand out. And even more tragic is we kind of grow to like the intensity and tension of our drama. And strangely, we become suspicious of peace. <laughs> I mean, it's, the great, it's the great irony, almost like we have to cultivate a taste for peacefulness and simplicity and non-attachment as if something's wrong that i'm not attached i'm not intensely desiring or intensely trying to get even with somebody that harmed me in some way or yeah just as if the appropriate way to be alive the appropriate way to be engaging the present moment is to be in a struggle That just seems to go with the territory of having a mind and body, or having a life, is that we're in a, it's a struggle, you know, and we talk about this in different ways. Oh, it's a dog-eat-dog world. and So it's no wonder, you know, that this is the way, and interestingly, the Buddha says something like, you know, we've been spinning long enough to be wise and dispassionate, So, what is it that we're not seeing in our life right now? What is it that we're not seeing that keeps us spinning in these cycles of suffering, these stressful cycles of chasing and being pushed around by our likes and dislikes, being in conflict with the present moment? What is it that we're not seeing? And whatever it is, it would be here and now. For each of us, right now, here and now, that we're not seeing. And when seen clearly, all of this activity, all this samsaric activity of chasing our likes and running away from our dislikes and being pushed around by the winds of liking and not liking and pleasant and pain and hope, and fear. The heart would be released from all that drama. Not so much from the activity of life, that's not going to go anywhere, but from the mind's reactivity, the mind's clinging, the mind's pushing. And you might know that the Buddha says the cause, the actual underlying cause of dukkha, suffering, stress, Is not understanding it. And another way to get clear just in our own life is we, you know, what sets in motion the next round of stressful spinning is we actually think we do know the underlying cause of suffering. Like, for example, if only I can get done with this talk, you know, then I'll be free to do whatever I want for the rest of the evening or if only I save enough for retirement, or if only I get over this cold, or if only I can make this person like me, if only I can make a dent in my to-do list, and on and on. You know, if only the world weren't the way that it is, if only the United States once and for all cleaned up its act, or whatever we might, you know, put into that if only. So we keep thinking arrogantly that we know the causes for suffering, and so we, you know, ignorantly take up the banner, you know, okay, I get it, when this happens, when I make this happen, when I stop this from happening, then, then I'm going to be at ease. And so it's a a powerful step to acknowledge, one, that there is suffering, that there is stress, there is this existential uneasiness in my heart, this uncertainty. I feel burdened, I feel weighed down, distraught. Just to honestly acknowledge that, that's how it is, and I don't really know to resolve it. Obviously, that's true, because if we knew how to resolve it, if we knew how to resolve dukkha, we would have resolved it. We would be free from dukkha. But it's rare for us to really settle into that, that humility of there is dukkha, there is the unsatisfactory, uneasy, uncertain, vulnerable, insecure aspect of my subjective reality as a human being, and clearly, 63 years in, I haven't figured out how to resolve it. Because that sort of honest acknowledgement evokes that humility and that willingness to be more and more open. And I think this is clearly a step in the right direction because we actually get interested in the experience of suffering, you know. This is from Andy Olensky, some of you know, one of the original founders of the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, not too far from those of you in Cambridge. I'm assuming that some of you have gotten out there for some of the programs. But Andy started was sort of the lead person, lead scholar, and executive director for a long time. And he once said, only when we clearly see the thirst of craving, the underlying cause of suffering, are we able to quench it. And that takes a lot of humility and a lot of confidence and courage, you know, to, like, I really want to get to the heart of what seems like, like, I'm not even going to make the assumption that I'm suffering. All I know is ouch, or e, or whatever sound you make when you have a more honest sense of the heart not being free, not being free of being burdened. So how close are we willing to get? And, and you probably, if you've done some work with your own experience of unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, suffering... If you've done your own work, you'll notice that as we do settle with the invitation, well, what is this experience? What does it feel like? What happens if I relax? What happens if I put down some of the armor? We'll see very, unless the mindfulness and the confidence in mindfulness, mindful awareness, present moment awareness is really strong we'll notice these little and big off-ramps where the mind, as it gets more wormy, the, the kind of quality of unsatisfactoriness, uneasiness, unpleasantness, the mind, neurotically and uh, just reflexively, defends itself by telling itself what's going on. Right? It, it basically gives itself an explanation for the suffering for the stress for the uneasiness of the heart as if that definition oh i'm suffering because there are a bunch of ignorant people running the world so that's why my heart hurts like this or i'm i feel this way because my dog doesn't really appreciate me <laughs> or my partner doesn't treat me the way i want to be treated or my body's falling apart because I'm getting older. And it it always sort of makes sense, whatever, at least in that moment, that it distances the heart from the reality of the present moment, from dhamma or dharma, the way it is. And we don't get that. That's a hard thing to really get, that our attempt to explain what's going on to ourselves, to define, you know, problem-solve what's going on, actually often turns out to be distancing. And the more distant we are, the further we are from resolving the issue of dukkha, of suffering, and the more we're in that vicinity of doing relating in a way that keeps the spin spinning, endless spinning. We're kind of, you know, one uh, wise Sri Lankan monk talks about it, that we're reacting over and over again, we're reacting to the residual or the uh, reverberations of wrong understanding and relating to the present moment through the wrong understanding. So that leaves the heart uneasy, wavering as if something's missing, something's lacking. right? And because we don't understand that uneasy feeling, it just seems so appropriate to react to it in a predictable way, like, yuck, I don't like this. So either we use denial, pretend it's not happening, or we push it away, or we reach for something pleasant. But whatever we do, it throws us off balance. Uh, Some of you, maybe many of you know Sharon Salzberg, one of the wonderful teachers in our lineage and founder of IMS. Um, I don't know if she came up with this uh, analogy or just uses it, but... I remember reading somewhere or hearing somewhere her say, it's as if we're standing on a tightrope, doing our best to keep our balance. Life is happening, thoughts arise, sounds arise, experience comes and goes. And uh, as soon as the mind gets identified with any aspect of experience, we lose our balance, we fall off the tightrope, but we always end standing on another tightrope the next moment. And so part of what we're learning to do is just fully inhabit in a very deeply honest way, the way it is. Yeah, stuff's happening. Internally, the the reverberations of the past is arising as our thoughts and feelings and ways of perceiving, ways of relating to experience. And then there's all the other stuff, the sights and sounds and sensations that we're feeling and that's arising, that's showing up based on so many other causes and conditions, right? So we're in the midst of karma unfolding, you know, the lawful cause and effect of everything that's in motion, internally, externally. And can we be here in this radiant balance on our very particular tightrope called the present moment and not be afraid, not be ignorant? and not be disconnected from what's coming and going. And the nice thing about that image of just, one, is we can't really break it because we're just going to end up in another tightrope. So even when we do make a so-called mistake and we react, take things personally, push away with aversion, grasp with a, with greed, become distracted or in denial or deluded and spaced out, we always have the next moment to realize, okay, it's like this now. This is being known. And the other thing I like about this image is that uh, the problem isn't that we're sensitive, that we're there in that exposed place on the tightrope, wide open you know you can imagine if you're on a tightrope i'm sure you've seen some of these pictures of some of these folks that you know put the ropes between two skyscrapers or between two cliffs and it just seems amazing what people are willing to do and uh and the image that that evokes or the emotional quality rather that that evokes for us is of exposure you know total Exposure, right? With stuff coming at us. And the idea is it's okay to be, you know, to be sensitive. In fact, we want to, as a practitioner, as a student of the Buddhist teachings, we want to really value and embrace sensitivity. No one's saying it's easy to be a sensitive human being. It just happens to be the way toward the deepest learning and freedom. And it makes sense, right? I mean, nobody would write a Buddhist book, a contemporary Buddhist book, you know, saying, the Buddha's teaching you know, the wonderful path of numbness and distractedness and closing down and burying our heads in the sand, and that's the way. You know? no, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. So we all know we have this capacity to be vividly present. We experience it from time to time, maybe because we're surprised in a moment, or you see something that to you seems really unique or special and it activates your sensitivity, or you just had a good sleep and you feel good and you feel really awake and sensitive. But sensitivity is a powerful, wonderful thing but it takes wisdom to be able to handle that degree of of sensitivity. And generally, because it's so hard, we either blame the sensitivity for our suffering or we blame the experiences that we're sensitive to for our suffering. But a wiser person who's checked it out, who's really begun to pay attention with a lot of humility, a lot of honesty, a lot of persistence, then slowly, gradually, we don't really get the whole picture, but we do begin to understand that it isn't that we're sensitive, and it isn't what we're sensitive to that's actually the problem. That something shows up in conjunction, like when we're in that exposed place, and there's stuff coming at us, sights and sounds and sensations and thoughts and emotions, which is just an ordinary moment of life, something arises in that experience. And uh, in a Buddhist sense, we'd say it arises out of a wrong interpretation or out of a misperception of that experience of sensitivity being sensitive. And that's really, we really want to keep coming back to this point something is being known. There's an object of experience, there's an experience, and there's a sensitive mind, a sensitive heart, that is sensing that experience. And that's about all we can say about our human predicament. And as students of the Buddha, we should be willing you know, training, willing to trust our actual experience. And then we get these teachings from the Buddha. When you tune into your experience, check it out. Maybe this simple pointing out that all we can really know about this moment, any moment, is something is being known. It's always that. It's not more than that, and it's never less than that. Something is being known. That's including, of course, this moment. Something is being known. Something is being known. Now, it feels initially like a profound insult to to reduce my, you know, what to me feels so rich and complex, my experience as a human being, that it has never been more and will never be less than this experience being known. This experience being known this experience being known. But to the degree we cultivate that simple and, I think, profound instruction to see whether that understanding actually lines up with our subjective experience as a human being, is it really takes out this reactivity. There's just, we're realizing it's a waking up, we're waking up realizing that it's okay to be sensitivity being sensitive to sense experience like it's almost like we're growing roots learning to relax learning to trust how profoundly simple it's always been will always be and that and the radical discovery is when we more and more align with that profound truth, that simple truth, that it's something being known, it's an experience being known. There's a sensitive heart sensing the next experience. And even the thought, no, no, this is happening to me and I don't like it, or the thought, this is happening to me and I do like it, That's just the next thing being known. That thought, the sensitive heart, senses that thought as a thought. And if there's an emotional charge to that thought, the sensitive heart or the sensitive mind or whatever that sensitivity is, we don't even know. We just know there's sensitivity, isn't that right? So we use the word mind or heart, but we don't. All we know is that there's sensitivity to sense experience. That's all we know, sensitivity to sense experience. And when we practice in a playful, persistent, humble way, just aligning with this radically simple truth of our subjective experience, the suffering, the stress, the reactivity, the greed, hatred and delusion loses its sting, loses its weightfulness, because it's seen as just the next thing being known, the next thing being felt, the next experience that the sensitivity is sensitive to. The most beautiful experience we will ever have, have ever had with something being known. Some of you, I'm sure, have had some terrible moments in your life, really painful Maybe a moment of loss, or a moment of great despair or confusion. And that moment was something being known. There was sensitivity, sensing that emotion or that experience, whatever it was. It wasn't more or less than that. The moment we die will be something being known. If you're about to give birth in a month or two, you're pregnant, that moment, which I'm guessing would seem like that's going to be amazing, and in and, and this sort of normal sense, it probably is truly amazing, is an experience being known. Deep love, the deepest healing, is something being known. Really despicable thoughts, really despicable actions is something being known, something being felt. Bhikkhu Bodhi, some of you know, he's an American Buddhist monk, quite old now, wonderful translator and just a powerful teacher for so many decades. He lived for a long time in Sri Lanka, is now back in the East Coast at a monastery. And he wrote once, liberation is the inevitable fruit of the path. The only requisite for reaching the final goal is to start and to continue. And so, what does that mean? Like, if we use that image of the tightrope, you know, it means recognizing, it doesn't matter how many times we fall off or we react, even if the spinning goes on for a while before we eventually realize, oh, here and now, it's like this now. And in Buddhist terms, we say that recognition of the present moment, recognizing this is the present moment, this is being known, like uh, one of my favorite lines from Ajahn Samedo, another elder Western monk, wonderful teacher. I think it was actually, maybe it was even the, I think now is the knowing was the title of the book, but the whole statement is, the past is gone, the future unknown now is the knowing. And that now is the knowing is just another way of saying this is being known or sensitivity, sensing this. There's sensitivity, sensing this. And it's not even two things, like here's the knowing mind, here's the sensitive heart, here are the objects, we bring them together. It's just like there's this present moment, moment by moment, right? And when we cultivate an interest in this present moment, if we look at it this way, we sense the different objects that are being known. And when we look at the present moment this way, we realize that they're being known. And the object that's being known is less important than that they're being known, that it's being known, being felt, being known, being known. This is being known. Now that, now this other thing's being known. But it's just the present moment, and it has these two facets. It's a something being known. Now is the knowing. And there's something because mostly we humans are um, fixated and reactive to the objects that are being known. So, in a way, our, our way of being or way of relating, or way of understanding, is uh, distorted. So in a way, the practice is to bring how we perceive, how we're aware, back in balance. So that's why we often get that instruction to emphasize the knowing more than the object that's being known. We can still say the same thing, this is being known, but we want to really... Like, that it is being known. This is being known. Because it really breaks apart that when we realize it's just something being felt, just something being known. It has the effect of undermining how complete and solid our conceptual universe, the, You know, the story we're telling ourselves about who I am, I'm here in Minneapolis, talking mostly to folks around Boston and we're using this technology called Zoom and I can see out my window and it's kind of damp and cool here in Minneapolis, you know. So I've got the story and that story feels like a pretty solid edifice, like it's really real. But actually, right here, right now, my experience is simply something being known. And in, in you know any thought that, no, 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 that's a thought I'm having, that's just the next thing being known. And this is what we're aligning with. When we align with the Buddhist teachings, when we really become a sincere student, then we're really uh, cultivating, really what we're aligning with is the practice. And the people who practice and the teachings that talk about the practice, clearly that's really helpful. But it's the practice that is really our refuge. Nothing more. Nothing ultimately will help us except the practice. No one can do it for us. And the practice is cultivating this awareness of the present moment. And by that we mean this realization that the present moment is always this tightrope. Right? There's this exposure of sensitivity, sensing, sense-experience, endlessly, it never ends. And it's quite diverse, right? It isn't just like one thing being known. It's amazingly wild and diverse, the movement, the flow of sound and sight and thought and emotion and touch. And especially all of that ignorance, right, which is, you know, one way to understand it, is the the mind's interpretation of what's going on and the mind's clinging to its interpretation of what's going on. That's the problem that rises in conjunction with sensitivity and experience that sensitivity is sensitive to. Part of what arises, this is that uh, reverberation, the karma, the karmic fruit of wrong view, wrong understanding, is this sort of reverberation, the sense of tension, weightfulness, burdensomeness, uneasiness of the heart. And that, what we would call suffering or stress, that uneasiness, it doesn't occur to us very often to realize that's just the next thing being known. It's like this now. That uneasy, wormy feeling in my heart is being known. The not liking of it is being known. The thinking that I should do something to make it go away is being known. I'm going to become a Buddhist, is being known. I'm going to stop being a Buddhist because it hasn't worked, is being known. Right? So we really align with the practice. We don't align with the story that if I do my practice, I'm going to get somewhere. That story is something being known. It's the practice itself that's liberating. <laughs> you know, It's like uh, one of the beautiful things about the Buddhist teachings is the beautiful integrity of the practice, how, how the practice is aligned with the aspiration, the goal. Right. If we aspire, if we have this goal to be free, no matter the conditions, peaceful, no matter the conditions, the practice is to practice being free and peaceful with the conditions that are showing up right now. Oh, it's like this. What is this? This is this is an experience being known. It's this being known. And any reactivity, any freezing up, any violent, you know, hating of what's going on is being known. It's just the next thing being known. So the Buddha says this is the sutta, the title, an, an Auspicious Day. And this is translated by Gil Fronstal. It's from the Middle Link Discourses. It's a pretty well known sutta, uh, Middle Link Discourses 131. Don't chase the past or long for the future. The past is left behind, the future is not yet reached. Have insight into whatever phenomenon. Are present right where it is not faltering and not agitated by knowing whatever is present one develops the mind ardently do what should be done today who knows death may come tomorrow there's no bargaining with mortality and his great army Whoever dwells thus ardent, active day and night, is, says the peaceful sage, one who has an auspicious day. Have insight into whatever phenomenon are present. Oh, this is being known. And that insight is really realizing the simple, profoundly simple truth not being confused by all our mental interpretations, the story we might, the mind might reflexively tell itself. Everything, whether it's a thought, a sound, a sight, a sensation, a a feeling, an emotion, everything is simply this being known, this being known, right where it is, the Buddha says, not faltering, not agitated, By knowing whatever is present, one develops the mind, one develops the heart. Ardently do what should be done today. Don't put it off. And this is the thing, we can still live our life, obviously, you know, everyone here. You have your duties and responsibilities. Obviously, that's not going to, certainly not go away tomorrow, and may even increase, you know, in terms of how your life unfolds. But that doesn't have to be... The idea that the duties and responsibilities are a problem, that idea is a problem. But maybe it's not true. Maybe being a busy human being actually doesn't have to be such a problem. Now, of course, it really helps not to be too busy, right? But as long as we're busy, we don't want to be confused by the idea that will arise, I'm too busy to be mindful. I'm too busy to be wise. I mean, it's basically like we're saying, I'm so busy, I deserve to be crazy and neurotic and uh, reactive and tight and full of suffering. And, uh, and you know, the Buddha, Buddhism is so pragmatic, the question we want to ask is, is that thought helpful? <laughs> and obviously it's not. You know, giving ourselves a pass, assuming we're destined to be a suffering human being what does that lead to it doesn't lead to anything you know in the direction of freedom what leads to freedom is the practice itself and everything else is a step towards suffering i mean really it's that simple we're either taking a step that is stressful and toward more stress or we're taking a step toward release that's already releasing. This really, I know that sounds a little blunt or you know, clear-cut, but I really think it's that simple. But the nice thing about it is we're never far we we cannot ever be distant from the practice. We could be so confused, we could be so caught up in our thoughts and our attachments. But how far away is it for the mind or wisdom to realize it's like this now. This is being known. It feels like this now. It's just this experience being felt, not more, not less. That movement of practice is never far away, because it doesn't have any particular conditions. We don't need to be in the lotus pose or in a quiet room to realize. This is being known. And an image I like, I don't know if people know another great uh, translator and Dharma teacher, a Buddhist monk, a Western Buddhist monk, Ajahn Tanisaro. He's the abbot of a monastery outside of San Diego. and uh, But one of his teachers uh, told him, uh, you know, more than just this phrase, but this phrase sort of sums it up. Mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them. And isn't that good? It really paints that or creates a powerful image in our mind like we could be in a life and death struggle trying to lift a mountain, but all it takes to release that burden of thinking, I need to lift this mountain, and the despair and the frustration and the, ripping of flesh, trying to move or lift the mountain. All it takes is to realize I don't have to lift this mountain. The mountain is a problem only when I'm trying to move it. I mentioned this to somebody and then a former staff person from IMS gave me this other quote that I hadn't seen before. And I'm not sure where it came from. I think it was just a a friend of his said this. But it's only confusing if you think it should make sense. And I think that's useful with life, like part of why we don't want to commit to the practice, being on that tightrope of the present moment, stuff happening internally, externally, sometimes losing our balance, landing back on the tightrope, and we get some sustained freedom when we realize it's just being known, it's just being known, part of the reason that's so challenging is we feel like we deserve an explanation right and when we look at a lot of the religious traditions in history throughout history active today or in the past part of what those religious spiritual traditions did is they offered an explanation and then generally we'd put we'd write the explanation down and put it in a fancy box and bow down to it or something like that you know, and create some institutional religion around it. There are elements of Buddhism that are very similar to that, so, you know, we're not out of the woods with that. We can treat our relationship to the Buddhist teachings in that same way, where it's like we just want to be close, we really respect these teachings, and, and that's okay, you know, to have that sort of dev- devotional element it can be quite powerful and sustaining. And certainly part of a good, balanced practice, that devotional energy, no doubt. But on its own, it sort of misses the point. And it can be part of this tendency that, this deep sense that I deserve, I need an explanation. And the Buddha's response to this, you probably, some of you have heard the stories where the house is burning down, somebody's caught in the burning down house, they're trying to save the person, drag them out of the house, but the person's refusing. I'm not leaving this burning house until I find out who started the fire, where they started it, what sort of fuel they used, and their motivation. (laughs) You know, of course, it's crazy to stay in a burning down house. You should just leave. Maybe later you can figure out that stuff if you want. But the point, the relevant point, is get out of the burning down house. And it's the same thing, you know, it becomes confusing because before we do the practice, we want to know why. We want to know how. And one of the things that I've always appreciated about, you know, early Buddhism and just uh, aligning as best we can, imperfectly of course, but aligning as best we can with the teachings of this person who lived some 25, 2600 years ago, and taught for forty some years in northern India, from based on his own awakening experience, and was able to articulate the mind from a deep enough perspective that even some, you know, so many years later, different culture, still these teachings still seem to illuminate my own experience as a human being. Because he's, he doesn't really spend, the early Buddhist teachings don't spend time uh, dwelling on metaphysical truth. They're not trying to tell us the way it is, they're trying to convey a way of being, a way of practicing, a way of relating to our experience as a human being. And. You know, we can sum this up as where we relate to our experience in this profoundly simple way, in this very immediate and direct way, and we let the moment reveal itself, right? It is just something being known. Thoughts are thoughts being known. Being jazzed by the content of my thoughts, that's being jazzed as being known being energized as being known. And that's so interesting like uh, some uh, c- a compliment to this teaching that it's only confusing if you think it should make sense is um, realizing you know our mind can ask all kinds of questions in, in a demanding way. Why did that person say this to me? why did Putin decide to invade Ukraine? Why do I get tight when I'm around certain kinds of people? And uh, it's not that we don't want to be interested. We want to be interested. We want to embrace sensitivity. But we don't want to cling or be dependent on the answers the thinking mind, the cognitive mind construct. Insight, understanding is it really dependent on the the conceptual interpretation or the the conceptualizing of the understanding? When we when our mind suddenly understands something that it doesn't un, didn't understand before very quickly the thinking mind the cognizing mind will interpret the experience back to itself but before that cognizing aspect of the mind constructs that interpretation the understanding is already there right the, the deepening of understanding We don't need that interpretation. We don't need to be afraid of it either. It's just the next thing being known. And when you have, when we have deeper insight, it is sudden like that. It's just a sudden understanding that wasn't there before. And there may be, who knows, all kinds of different reverberations. But the important thing is that understanding happened, that shift in understanding happened. And the mind the mind stream, you know, goes forward changed by that shift. So we'll notice like how we relate, how we respond, how we are is different going forward because of the deepening of understanding. This is from one of my teachers, Saida Uteshaniya, a Burmese monk and wonderful meditation teacher. He said, we don't complain about what's happening. Everything is experience. Whatever is happening is happening to cause and effect. They do their job, we do our job. What should we do? We just recognize what's happening. Everything is nature. And this really is nature, something being known. That is really the essence of nature. There's sensitivity sensing experience. And what is our relationship to nature? Well, just to allow... You know, we practice, right? It's a practice. We practice allowing nature to be nature. And then when me, the practitioner, or me, the angry one, or me, the greedy one, me, the deluded one, arises, we practice doing our practice, which is, okay, now this is being known. The sense of, oh, poor me, is being known, it's just something being known. Or the sense, oh, I'm getting close to real insight, that's being known, or it's never going to happen to me, that's being known. this uh, piece about it being nature and not-self is something that Saito Uteshaniya really emphasizes. Sometimes one of his common statements is you only have to do three things, you know, have right view, continue to have right view, keep having right view. And it's really true, you know, and the Buddhist teachings are really about this wisdom, the wisdom of wise view, seeing things, relating, perceiving in alignment with the way things are. Now that's sort of a setup, isn't it? Because how can we do that when we're just an ordinary ignorant human being? So we start off by, you know, we have this great advantage of the Buddhist teaching still being available. So we have, at least on this informational level, we receive these teachings. So at least we can start by going, okay, our teacher, the Buddha, says that things can be really simple. And he, in many ways, talks about being aware, mindfully aware, something is being known. And then he has this teaching that whatever that is, it's nature, not self. It's nature, not self. Like once he said, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. When one sees this thus as it really is, with wisdom, the mind becomes dispassionate and is liberated from the taints to non-clinging. And some of you know the uh, famous story where the Buddha held up a, a handful with a few leaves in it And just made the contrast, you know, all the leaves in the forest and the few leaves in my hand. And then he he said to the people in front of him, what's more, all the leaves in the forest or these few leaves in my hand. Obviously they knew, you know, a lot more in the trees than in your hand. And the Buddha says, thus so. You know, I could, I've seen a lot in my practice, the Buddha says. But I only teach, I've really distilled the teachings to just what we need to know. And that's the real, that's something to be truly grateful for and even really devotional around that we have these teachings. And the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center and Comgram Meditation Center here in Minneapolis, and so many other of these institutions here in the West, and of course, many, many around the world, they're just the reverberations of humans being inspired by these teachings which are so straightforward in a way. Something being known and this flow of something being known is what we call nature, not-self. And the not-self is just pragmatically arises from studying our own subjective experience, something being known. Sometimes we think that the teaching on anatta, the not-self, is somehow um, like, doesn't align with my personal experience as a human being, because it certainly feels like I'm here. But actually, we totally need to cultivate a clear, direct awareness of our subjective experience. That's all we have, obviously, right? And that's where the understanding is confirmed. We get it initially as information, and then we memorize it so we can go, okay, I don't know, I don't really get it, but the Buddha says it's just something being known and this continuity of something being known, something being known is the activity of nature in the sense that it doesn't actually refer back to me in any sort of solid permanent sense. It's just always, forever, something being known, something being known. And whenever it feels like it's referring back to me, that's just the next thing being known and the next thing being known, and the next thing being known. So that's now, I'm just talking on an information level, right? I've just got the concepts, I can spout them. That's kind of part of the job description of being a Dharma teacher, is you can talk about this stuff. And then the key is we have to be able to regurgitate it, even on this conceptual level, so we can use it to help us connect with our actual experience, and that sort of sets up that sudden insight. So the first thing is we get information, the next thing is we become personally fluent with the information, and we learn how to apply the information, to use the information to get close to our subjective actual experience, moment by moment, to be present. So, we're using the teachings of the Buddha and to learn how to be, to recognize our own personal present moment experience. Oh, standing on a tightrope, totally exposed to the present moment. What's going on here? Stuff is being known. This is being known. This is being. Soon as I think it's more than that, I lose my balance. I'm lost for a while, caught up in thought. feeling the energetic entanglement of being lost in thought. So even once I awareness or wisdom comes back into the present, there's the reverberation of having been lost in thought. Have you noticed that when you've been lost in thought for a while and you come back? Energetically, the whole body-mind system is uneasy because it had been spinning with greed or spinning with aversion or spinning with delusion for a while, lost in thought, when it comes back, it's a little uneasy. But that's just another thing being known. If we think, oh, i got to... then we're losing the balance again. So whatever the reverberation for having been a bad yogi, a bad meditator, that to get back on the tightrope, to get some continuity, we have to realize that any karmic fruit for having been lost in thought is just the next thing being known even if you really harmed yourself by getting into some really intense vortex, you know, where you're really scheming to get even or lusting and you feel completely tied up into knots, our only choice is to realize standing there as an exposed human being, this is being known, this is being felt. It's like this now. Can it be okay just to be completely sensitive to what is here to be sensitive to. And to realize it's just this, it's just the natural, it's just nature unfolding as nature does according to so many causes and conditions. And I don't need to project that there's more here. And if I do neurotically project that there's more going on here, I just see that projection as the next thing being known. And the next thing being known. This is from Ajahn Buddhadasa. He's he wrote a nice short article. A single handful. It was published in Tricycle a while back. It's probably from I think it's from his book Under the Bodhi Tree, uh, an, a really wonderful book that Carl translated. He's a, a Western teacher. Um, used to be a monk with Ajahn Buddhadasa in Thailand, and his translator. Um, and so um, Ajahn Buddha Dasa this very famous Thai meditation master, Buddhist monk, is just talking about the Buddhist teachings on anatta, the impersonal nature, that everything's nature, not self. From this it can be seen that compared to all the myriad things in the world, the root principles to be practiced were the complete extinction of dukkha, suffering, amount to a single handful. We must appreciate that this single handful is not a huge amount. It's not something beyond our capacities to reach and understand. This is the first important point that we must grasp if we want to lay the foundation for correct understanding of the Buddhist teachings. The saying of the Buddha that deals with the practice regarding emptiness is the saying that is the heart of Buddhism. It requires our careful attention. So he quotes the Buddha. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. The Buddha himself declared that this is the summation of all the teachings. He said that to have heard the phrase nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine is to have heard everything. To have put it into practice Practice is to have practiced everything. To have reaped its fruits is to have reaped every fruit. So we need not be afraid that there is too much to understand. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. And that's really nothing more. Like when there's some momentum for maybe just a few seconds, in that wise awareness, this is being known, this is being known, that in a way demands that nothing whatsoever should be clunked to as I, me, or mine, right? Because that's the losing of the balance on the tightrope. And then we're in the vortex, we're in another whirlpool of selfing, driven, animated by greed or hatred or delusion. And that will last as long as it's lasts. And we're really in those vortexes. We're not really able to practice until there's at least a little crack in the vortex where wisdom understands. It's like this now. Suffering, spinning, being caught. It's like this. It's just this experience being known. There's sensitivity, being sensitive, to being a diluted human being spinning. But now there's that space around the spinning. So in a way we're back on the we're back on the tightrope. Ah, it's a wild time. A lot of reverberations from the past entanglements, but it's just stuff being numb, just stuff being felt. It's like this now. Can it be okay that it's this wild, this intense, this unpleasant? Or, in moments, this beautiful, this radiant, this quiet. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Because it's just this being known. It's nature. It doesn't refer back. So whether it's intense, whether it's boring, whether it's unbelievably beautiful, it's just this. Now, of course... That may not sound very appealing to some people. (laughs) But that's the thing about the practice. You know, to the degree the information is inspiring to us, that we memorize it so we can use it to get close to our experience, we'll find, like it or not, like even if we don't like the way it sounds, the teachings, we find that somehow it works. And I mentioned Ajahn Tanisaro Saro earlier. Another one of his teachers in Thailand, one of the great uh, Thai forest masters said, when you start to experience some of the freedom that comes from practice, you don't care that it isn't personal. Freedom, release, whatever you want to call it, the unbinding of the heart, the unburdening of the heart, that's what the heart wants. And it doesn't matter You know, that it doesn't fit our sort of childish romantic ideas of enlightenment or freedom or, you know, what a perfect human life is. What matters is the releasing of the heart, the putting down of the burden. So I want to save some time for discussion. So I'll just end by uh, reading a passage from Ajahn Samedho. I think one of the better introductory books to uh, early Buddhism is Ajahn Sumedho's book, The Mind in the Way. So if you have some friends that are interested in getting a nice... I mean, it's not just for beginners, but it's a really beautiful overview, The Mind in the Way by Ajahn Sumedho. And it's sort of interesting because, you know, generally I think it's fair to say that Buddhist Buddhist practitioners were were neither optimistic nor pessimistic. were really pragmatic or realistic, right? And that was uh, something one of my teachers, Ajahn um, Saida Utejaniya, said. But it almost sounds like Ajahn Semedo is being very optimistic. So I think it's a little provocative. That's why I want to read it to end. Um, And again, the book is The The Mind and the Way. He writes, As human beings, we are vulnerable little creatures. In contrast to the universe, we are weak and soft. For example, we may have Very delicate skin that's easily damaged, but in spite of our vulnerability in the midst of a vast and mysterious universe, one can feel total trust. From my own insight through meditation, I know that there is total trust now. There is complete confidence in the benevolence and wonder of the universe. One can't really perceive the whole vast universe in any clear way, One can only open to it. Ordinarily, human consciousness is limited to the perceptions we have through our senses. It's very difficult for us to catch glimpses beyond that. But the more we let go of our grasping of the sensory world, the less we hold on to it and identify with it. The more we begin to have glimpses of deathlessness, we begin to experience Amaravati, the deathless realm. And by the way, Amaravati is the name of the monastery where he was the abbot in England, still there in England, one of the big monasteries, which means the deathless realm. The underlying unity, the overlying compassion, and the whole wondrous miracle. It's part of the human condition that in spite of our obvious limitations as individual creatures, we have an ability to comprehend the whole But that comprehension comes not from the perception of the whole, but from the opening of the heart, the non-clinging. He writes, We are not just trying to believe in the perception of wholeness that we hold on as a doctrine. We are going to the very experience of wholeness as we open the heart. This is fearlessness. It is a willingness to be hurt, to be totally sensitive, and to bear with the pain, despair, and confusion of our sensory experience. And it reminds me of a short line from a translation and probably interpretation of one of Rumi's poems, I think by Coleman Barks, the translator. I have have lived on the lip of insanity, Wanting to know reasons, knocking on a door, it opens. I've been knocking from the inside. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.